Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Vox Media is looking for a principal designer for their platform group, and you can work out of their NYC or DC offices as well as remotely. Also starting this month, we've included job postings from Indeed.com for full-time positions across a number of different titles. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. MailChimp just recently improved their automation features so you can do cool things like drip email campaigns, connect with shopping cart softwares, and create custom workflows to do all kinds of cool stuff. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. Do you need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code SPREADLOVE and save 10% off your purchase. Now for this week's interview, I talked with Owen Michael Hammonds, lead facilitator and senior designer at IBM Design. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I am Owen Hammonds, no W-O-E-N. I am a, a lead facilitator and a senior designer at IBM Design here in Austin, Texas. So IBM Design, I actually have, have interviewed someone else that works at IBM in Austin, but I don't know I don't know if a lot of designers think of IBM when it comes to design. IBM has been such a kind of mainstay when you think about enterprise computing and things of that nature. How long has IBM Design been around and what do they sort of contribute to IBM as a whole? Well, that's a great question because we literally just celebrated in November our three-year birthday, if you can say. So it's been about three years since IBM Design has started as a, a new initiative within IBM. And the big thing that people get confused with IBM Design is that they think that we're part of the marketing department or something like that. And we're not really. We are all designers with that are based that do visual design, uh, design research, UX design, and front-end development focused on creating better experiences for our software. As some people may know, over the past couple of years, IBM has been selling off a lot of its hardware. And mm-hmm. they've been focusing in on the software experience that in a lot of the uh, software that IBM has been developing over the several decades here. And so that's where IBM Design comes in, where we here in Austin, Texas, and several other studios around the world have been tasked to create just better user experiences for the, uh, the software that IBM creates. Yeah, one of the, the missions, as I was sort of reading up on IBM Design, was that the goal is to, is to create a sustainable global culture of design yes. at IBM. Yes. And like you said, there are several IBM offices. Where are the other IBM design offices at? So we have Dublin and Ireland. We have Hursley, which is outside of Winchester in the UK. Shanghai is a studio. And then we also have, there's Paris just opened the IX studio, which is all focused on interaction design. And I'm missing one, Bubligen, which is in Stuttgart, Germany, is a studio as well, too. Oh, okay, so oh, the, yeah, the one as well. <laughs> I was gonna say, is the one here in Austin the only one in the U.S.? Okay, nice. <laughs> New, uh, New York office focuses on the Watson product, but they also have several other products as well up there too. Okay, and now in your role as lead facilitator and senior designer, can you kind of break down what those titles mean as it relates to the work that you do at IBM Design? So actually, back to what you were stating earlier about creating a sustainable culture of the global culture of design at IBM, 
the team that I, own, that I am on, the education activation team, our role is to like do that, is to create that and educate other people on how to use design thinking around the world to create better products. And so what we do is we mainly hold a lot of sessions that we call design boot camps with here in the Austin studio. And we have teams that come in from around the world to, we take them through a week long design thinking education of like how they can use design thinking to make their products better. And then one of the things that I work on along with uh, other teammates is that how do we scale that out to the other sites? There's IBM's in 170 countries around the world. And so how wow. do we scale that out to the other sites around the world? And this past year, my role was to actually go to some of the key sites, i.e. Toronto. We went to Toronto, Israel, Dublin, Shanghai, Beijing, Tokyo, Singapore, Bangalore, and a couple of other sites teaching week-long design thinking sessions with Hallmark product teams in those different sites there. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> it sounds like your job encompasses a lot of travel since you're kind of going to all these different sites and stuff too. Yeah. So this year was the big hit where like it was, we call like the hard touch, like touching, like literally going to the sites, really talking about why the importance of why we're using or adopting this new framework of design thinking to um, create better experiences for our products. But also, you know, so that was this year, but next year is going to be a lot more soft touch. And, you know, we're a technology company. And so we have to take advantage of the technology that we have here at IBM. If we don't have it, we're going to like create it. And how can we continue that? What's that second follow up and teaching design thinking or giving people the opportunity to, you know, re-educate themselves on some of the things that we talked about when we visited their sites. And so we're creating a couple of different technology platforms here that uh, will allow people to download a lot of new information that we upload about design thinking, different processes, case studies that people can like look at to see what other teams are doing and how they're getting over hurdles and what are their successes and using the and using design thinking to make their products better as well too. So probably not as much travel next year, but you know, it's we're definitely still reaching our global and brother and sister studios that are out there in the world. So like the soft touch that you're mentioning, is it I guess webinars or or things that people can sort of download, like courses and things like that? It's really a little bit of everything, Maurice. You know, as we actually right now we run a webcast here called Design Line, and it originally started out as we do these one-hour or forty-five-minute sessions with subject matter experts on different parts of design thinking or different parts of creating better user experiences for our users. And then we'll have a Q and A at the end of that where we actually field questions from people who come in or who dial into the webcast and we'll have a lot of the subject matter experts answer those questions. And we've done several of those over the past year and we're actually expanding that now. We've actually uploaded a lot of our decks to our internal website where people can download them and actually start running their own workshops. One of the things that we really heavily relied on when we did all of our traveling this year was to activate what we what we would call activate magic people in studios around the world that really are great educators, design thinking, great believers of design thinking as well too. And so we're allowing like we're giving them our resources to allow them to like do these workshops on their own as well too. And then we also still do some, you know, we do some support calls where if they call us, we talk to them for like a half hour, 45 minutes to walk them through some questions and things that they may have about decks that we've uploaded for them to be able to use. So that's another way that we're doing it. We're also doing a huge revamp of our internal website to like be more educational and how people can use design thinking and to create better products with their to create better products using design thinking as well too. So a lot of little soft touches here and there to allow people different ways that they can like access the information. I want to pull back a little bit here because I know people might be listening and 
are wondering what exactly is design thinking. Can mm-hmm. you kind of break that down a little bit so people know what that is? Yes. So design thinking, the way we define it is it's a framework for people to create better experiences and to solve problems creatively for their products or their service or you know whatever really is really anything that they may have something that they want to solve and that's one of the great things about design thinking is that it's not just for product design it can be used for a, a lot of things for i've seen teams use it for how to create better experiences for people who are first hired on to companies so you know what's that service what is that experience that we're going to give somebody who's brand new to our company and the way that we use it here, of course, is how do we create better experiences for people who use our products or our services or like even or even sales interactions. And we adopted it based off of, you know, there are several different versions and iterations of the design thinking framework. But we've based it off of four. our base framework is based off of four key areas, understanding our users, understanding the prototyping those things, evaluating them, and also exploring different ideas. A lot of that is part of lean design. Some people may know what lean design is. It's just how do you quickly iterate on ideas uh, so that you can create products and get them out there faster to the market. We're an enterprise yeah, I- company. We're mm-hmm. huge. <laughs> so, I mean, that type of thinking kind of works, but we needed to scale it up for an enterprise level software. So we've added a couple of different other modules to it. One is called Hills, and Hills are what we all de- define as mission statements that the entire team aligns around so that everybody on the team knows where we're going and what is that end goal at the end of it. A second one is called Playbacks. We've all, at some point in time, whether in design or you're in the corporation, have sat in that meeting that went on forever, and it's bullet point after bullet point, slide after slide. And what we want to change that so that, one, that our stakeholders, the people who are sponsoring the product, empathize with the user of the product, actually empathize with the real user of the product. Not the buyer, not the CIO, not the president of the company, not the one who's putting down $25 million, the actual user themselves. And so we wanted to change how we tell that story about what we're doing with the product to the stakeholder. And so we call them playbacks and they're more story format. They're more about empathy, talking about the pain points of the user why the user are having problems using our product or why the user would benefit if we create this product. And then we talk about in a story format how we are changing that experience for the user themselves. And then the third part of the framework that we've added on is the actual sponsor users themselves. Like I said before, the actual person who is the the developer using the product, the actual person who's creating that content marketplace so they can actually sell more products, more of their products, or anybody who's the actual user of our products or potential users of our products. So we're really going after and mainly focusing on the pain points of those people to make sure that we are actually capturing how a person is using our product or how a person may not be using our product and so that we can change that experience for the better for them. What are some of the challenges that sort of come with this role and, and all of these things that you're doing? I was, whew, some of the big challenges is scale. You know, one of the things like we've tapped a lot of people here at IBM and with the reach of our t- of, that our team has done. You know, there's only 12 or 13 of us on our team here. And so we've done a lot of work to get to reach as many people as possible, which is why next year we're doing the more soft touching of uh, how can we get more of these tools out within our intranet so that people will have more ability to adopt this framework for their product use. So scale has been a one. Two is just, you know, a lot of it's just the old IBM ways. A lot of people, a lot of teams have been here for a very long time. And we're asking them now to change the way that they work. So going 
into a workshop, whether it's here in Austin or in New York or in Bangalore, we're going up against a lot of people who are set in their work practices. And so, you know, usually we're having to like, you know, really, it's one thing to be, you know, a facilitator to help educate people in this new way of working. It's another thing to like ask people to like change the way that they work because we're going up against a lot of legacy. And that's a big hurdle for us every time we do a workshop. But we are pretty, I would say we are pretty successful in changing the mindset of a lot of people that are participating in the workshop. A lot of times people, you know, we do, typically our workshops are a week long. And typically we start on a Monday, we end like half day on Friday. And on Monday, people are sitting in their chairs, their arms are crossed. They have that disgruntled look of, <laughs> why am I here? <laughs> and then by Friday, we can't get rid of them. So <laughs> <laughs> They're working at the walls. They're do, doing post-it note and Sharpie activities. And they're actively going. It's like, can we keep going? It's like, I, we're just getting warmed up. And it's like, you know, continue this practice when you get back to your teams. <laughs> you know? It's like, this mm-hmm. is what we want you all to do. So it is something that is a barrier every time we go into the workshop. But again, we've had really good successes in changing the mindset of a lot of the offering managers, engineers, designers here with IBM. Now, I know that the IBM design, I guess, I don't want to say chapter, but basically what you're doing with IBM design, this is still fairly new do you think that in the future this is something that IBM would maybe open source or license for other companies to use this kind of paradigm of design thinking and how they can use it within their companies? It is open source. So, we, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't put our decks and things out there for the world to download, but we actually do a lot of workshops with external people in external groups. Our team has done, the education activation team has done workshops with AIGA. We have done workshops with quote unquote competitors that are out there that just want to, you know, understand how we're changing the culture of design at IBM. And so we've, you know, we've done a lot of workshops and, you know, when we do those workshops, we leave our materials with them so that they can continue that practice at their, you know, whether they are an organization or if, if it's a company. We want them to, we just don't want to like go in and like parachute in and then like run out. You know, we want to leave them the ability to be able to continue that practice on their own. So we definitely, we reach out, a lot of companies and organizations reach out to us to help them, you know, with whatever problem or or opportunity that they see that they want to like tap into with their organizations. That's good to know because I know that IBM just as a, a company has released and, and invented a lot of things that we use every day and probably don't even know that they really came from IBM. For example, the magnetic strip that's on mm-hmm. the back of credit cards, that's something yep. IBM created. The UPC code, yes. well, that's, that's well, you know, uh, that's from IBM, LASIK eye <laughs> surgery. Like, there's a lot of things that companies have innovated, but it's, it's hard to kind of trace it back to the source. So it's a good thing to know that IBM is also kind of out there sort of, you know, spearheading this and other companies and other workshops and things like that. Let's kind of pull back a little bit. I want to talk about you. I know you mentioned AIGA, which I do want to talk about because I know that you've had some very pivotal roles within AIGA. But let's go further back. Like, when was the first time you really got excited about design? Like, what did you always sort of have the spark for it as a child or anything? Yeah. So I come from a pretty artistic family. My brother is you know, a um, artist. My sister has done some creative things as well as, you know, my mom was, you know, the, the nurturer of like, creative, like putting that into us. And when I was in high school, actually, that was probably my first, I would track back that back to my first unknown interaction with design where I was actually designing brochures for you know, my teachers, I was part of a Red Cross club in school and, you know, I created brochures and handouts and things like that for our group. And I really didn't really understand what design was. I just kind of like, I guess I just had an eye for it. You know, I looked at Mm -hmm. what other people were doing 
And it's like, oh, I can do something similar to that, and then I would create it myself and and use that as a way to like hand out brochures or anything like that for the groups. And I actually deviated from that after high school, or actually even before I graduated from high school, because I joined the army. And I joined the army my junior year of high school, and they it was called a split option program. And my summer after my junior year, I went into basic training. And when I got back from basic training, I went back and finished up my senior year of high school. And then that's when I went into advanced individual training or AIT and finished up my specialty in the army. And I stayed in, I was in the army for eight years. And oh, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> that's like another lifetime almost. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I got done before, actually before I got done with the army, I actually started taking some college courses. I got back into taking some college courses at the local community college. And I knew I wanted to do something with drawing and art or something like that, but I didn't really know what it, I could do with it. And, you know, at that time, you know, the internet was still fairly new. I never really had it at home. And so I went to the library and I just dug around and looked around at a bunch of design books and things like that and art books. And it's like, discovered this thing called commercial art. And I was like, what is this commercial art? And, you know, a lot of it at that time, you know, it's marker rendering, Letraset uh, typeface rub downs and thing, different things like that that were all hands on. <laughs> and uh, it's like, oh, this seems really interesting. I, I like this a lot. I can use my art skills. I can use a lot of things that I liked when I was doing those brochures in high school. And so, like, I started taking some commercial art classes and... I knew that from there, I couldn't really go. I kind of saw that I was really loving this, and but I knew that I couldn't really go too far or as far as I wanted to with the degree that was being offered at the commercial uh, community college that I was going to. And so I uh, transferred and moved up north to northern Kentucky, to um, Northern Kentucky University, and finished up my degree there and got a BFA in design there. And really, I loved it. It was awesome. It was probably, and these were things where I had a couple guidance, people give me guidance with, but you know, those were things that I was like, I, if I want this, I need to like do this. And if I want to do this, nobody's going to hold my hand to do it. So I just need to go out there and like figure out how to do these things. And a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, I think I learned a lot of just taking risk in the army of like, you know, just take the risk and see what happens. And actually, before I actually graduated from Northern Kentucky University, my senior portfolio teacher brought in a guest critiquer, actually, John Carpenter from Benchmark in Cincinnati, which was right across the river from us, from Northern Kentucky. And he came in and he reviewed my uh, senior class work. And Bob Johnson, who was my teacher and, and still my mentor to this day, came to me after that class and it was like, John wanted to talk to you about possibly working at his company. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you talking about? He's <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, he wants to like, he wants to know if I can give you his. Uh, give him your contact information. He wants to talk to you further about, like, bring you in for an interview. And I was like, I am not ready. I don't have a book. I have schoolwork. I don't have real work. And so, <laughs> and so Bob actually helped me out, put my first real book together. And I literally went old school and carried around that really big old ad case that, you know, I actually tell my students now, I don't want to ever see you carry that big old ad case around as your portfolio. <laughs> but that's what I brought in, brought in some work and I actually spent a half day of interviewing there and learned a lot from that. And they, they hired me and it was like, we want you to work full time. And it's like, I can't, you know, I really want to finish up my degree. And so they worked with me there at Benchmark and they uh, allowed me to work part time, more than part time. And let me finish up my degree at NKU. And I, after I graduated, I went on full-time to NKU. And so that's how I really got started in my career in design. 
Wow. Tell me about kind of what it was like in terms of the creative scene there, because um, NKU's in Cincinnati, is that right? It's actually across the river in northern Kentucky. It's it's a l- little tiny town called Highland Heights, Kentucky, but it's right next okay. to Covington and Newport, which are, what, what you say, the, the larger cities in Kentucky. And it's pretty central, I mean, to a lot of other cities in other states. It's close to Indianapolis, to Columbus, to Louisville, to Lexington. What sort of influence, I guess, did being close to those other cities have to you as a designer when you were in school? Huge influences on my aspect of what design was, huge influences of what creativity is, big influences on just the amount of people that I met. Being in the Cincinnati, North Kentucky region, you know, Chicago was five hours away. And our student group would travel to Chicago a lot with faculty to go to art exhibits and go to actual portfolio reviews that were being held in Chicago. So that was be it was awesome to have great access to that. I'm originally from Louisville and Louisville's like a really great supportive art town. And so I think that's where a lot of my inspiration came from in the arts itself. And so it was great to be able to go back home and have still have some of that inspiring me. In my, you know, doing my career living in that region, and you know, just Cincinnati itself, amazingly very Republican based, but that there's a lot of money there that supports the arts, whether it's from Republicans or Democrats or liberals or just people in general have an appreciation for the arts in Cincinnati, and I really miss that. It's something that I didn't really really realize how much support for the arts were there until I moved. To Austin, where it's mm. it's more music oriented. There is support for the arts here, but compared to Cincinnati, I was like, wow, we really had it good in Cincinnati with with, <laughs> arts, with the art scene there, the arts and design scene there. You know, and a lot of the uh, the big supporters are the companies that actually the design agencies um, work with, i.e., Parker and Gamble, Johnson and Johnson is there, mm-hmm. Debo is there, so. A lot of those companies are supporters of the arts, whether it's fine art, opera, music, ballet, all those different things. And they are also the ones that support the advertising and design agencies there as well, too. So you mentioned student groups, and I know that you have played sort of pivotal roles at AIGA, both at the Cincinnati chapter and the Austin chapter. Tell me when you sort of first learned about AIGA and how, I guess, integral has been to your career? Wow. So AIGA first, my first tap into AIGA was in school and in college, of course, at NKU. And it was really a self-driven initiative. There was a bunch of us at school that, you know, we were like, we're a pretty cohesive group. We love design. We are the ones who stay here to two, three o'clock in the morning in the computer lab working on this stuff. We are the ones who are always going to a lot of the AIGA events in town here in Cincinnati. And it's like, why don't we just start our own student group? And so we actually talked to our faculty member, Stephen McCarthy and Christina de Alameda there. And they, you know, it's like, yes, do it. And, you know, you all run it <laughs> pretty much. And so we all got together. We got the, the, the appropriate amount of people to get together. Everybody turned in their dues. And we formed a, a, a student group there at the, at, in school. And I've been in and out of AIGA just based off, you know, things happening in life and things like that. But, you know, it's one of the, thing, the groups that have been pretty pivotal in my career, um, pretty pivotal in just moving around from, especially when I moved from Cincinnati to Austin, Texas, the very first thing I did before we even, my wife and I actually even settled down here was when's the next AIGA event? And I, Mm. you know, and and that was, you know, my first, the thing that I did and I went to a happy hour. I met the president at the time who was Matt Fangman and I talked to him and it's like, yeah, you know, you should, you know, look at this place Welcome to Austin. As a second, <laughs> like, look at this place. They're hiring. This is a pretty great place, and you know that was really great introduction to Austin for me. Was you know have a really supportive AIGA Austin uh, chapter here, and but 
before that, you know, I served on the board as vice president in the um, Cincinnati chapter, and Andre McCorkle was the president, and that was really pivotal and just helping me hone my skills and leadership and just really helping me understand where do I fit in, you know, the scheme of, of the design community in Cincinnati at that time. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, AIJ just kind of helped you. I mean, aside from, you know, on a networking level, it sort of helped, I guess, validate you as a designer. Would you say that's true? Yes, definitely. And I never really, for a long time, I never thought of it that way until I, you know, I really started getting on the board and really understanding the value and the uh, the impact that AIJ has, not in just my own personal experience in life, but also in other people's lives. And mm-hmm. when you're on the board, you really have to have empathy for your membership and you really have to understand your membership. And being on the board really helped me understand it's like, wow, we actually can really enable people to to learn more, to start their careers, to gain more professional development within their own skill sets. And that's when I was like, wow, it's it really does help validate not just myself, but you know, other people who want to be successful in design as well too. That's really, really good to to hear and to know. I'm an AIGA member also. I'm also part of AIGA's Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. And one of the things that we're sort of tasked with doing is trying to get student groups together at HBCUs mm-hmm. because most of them may have design programs. They might be a little small, but very few of them actually have student groups. And just based kind of on what you're saying, the importance of that student group helped to sort of get your feet wet in the design community to know about the different things that you could do as a designer. And I know that, you know, modern designers, and when I say modern designers, I mean like product designers, etc., probably don't have the best, I would say, perception of AIGA as being a modern institution. Yes. What would you say to, I don't know, the graphic designer, the web designer that is sort of skeptical about AIGA? Why is it important to them? I would probably suggest to them to look at who are the members of AIGA and look beyond just the figureheads, you know, the Michael Beirut's, the Polishers, and people like that. Look deep into like who are the members of AIGA, and you'll see yourself in there. And once you start seeing yourself in there, you will be able to relate more. And be able to actually have somebody that you can actually talk to, whether it's like, like, hey, I want to like be able to like, you know, reach out to people that are similar to me or like have same skill sets or same beliefs that I do. And AIJ, once you look deep into uh, like who are the members are, you'll see that there are a lot of people that you wouldn't expect to be a AIJ member are members, and there are a lot of interactive web product designers architects interior designers that are a part of AIGA that people don't mm-hmm. realize we are that broad and we still have a legacy you know that kind of hangs over us of just being for visual graphic designers and it's much more than that and depending on what chapter that you are with hopefully that chapter is providing you with the necessary resources that cater to the community where they are at as well, too. So, for instance, here in Austin, very tech-heavy, very tech-savvy. But we also have a lot of advertising, a lot of visual designers, a lot of traditional designers here as well, too. So I would say our chapter has a lot of places to tap to you know, make sure that we are servicing our membership because it's, we are, as a board member, as a vice president, I'm here to service our membership, not to service myself. And so mm-hmm. I have to look beyond. I'm a visual designer by trade. I work in the software design industry, but I also have to make sure that we are tapping it into our broad network of different careers within the Austin area as well, too. Very cool. That's really good to hear. I like that. In your bio, one of the first things that you describe yourself as is a mentor. 
who have been some of your mentors? I know you mentioned uh, Bob Johnson earlier, but who are some of your mentors and how did they help inspire your work? Wow. So I would say Leslie Hall is one of my earlier mentors, as well as Bob Johnson, John Carpenter, who was the one that came to my class and hired me onto Benchmark. Those were some of my early mentors, and they really helped shape, like really sculpt this rock. <laughs> I, was, I was hard-headed, and I was I and a lot of I I used to wear you know a lot of emotions on my sleeves earlier in my career, and they really helped me be able to like help shake me into like not being as emotional being more and but also being proactive in my career as well too and channeling that emotion into action and they were the Mm. ones who like really helped me be able to you know when i see opportunity or when i can see something that can be done better don't ask for permission just do it a lot of people would typically take that emotion i used to do this as well too and rave about it but you know instead of doing that like do something, you know, make that change. And that was something that they did in my career that just really helped me become a better designer. I was also a better a leader. And also those things that they taught me earlier in my career made me value mentorship and the importance of mentorship. And, you know, for a long time, they probably never knew that they were my mentors until I literally told them and actually started meeting up with them more regularly, especially Les, because Les worked with me at Benchmark. You know, I would have regular meetings with Les in his office and talk to him about what's going on, you know, what's my day like, you know, some career choices that came along, actually, as well, too, for in my career. I've always bounced those things off of them to, you know, help me make decisions or like kind of like make suggestions and and paths that I could possibly take as well too. Now I've interviewed over 150 designers so far and the common thread among the majority of them has been a lack of mentorship. What are your thoughts on kind of the state of mentorship now in the design community? For me, I honestly think that mentorship is all around us. There may be people that you don't expect them to be your mentor, but they could possibly be your mentor. And I hear this a lot in previous places that I've worked at. I've actually even heard it here at IBM. It's like, I'm looking for a mentor. It's like, look to your left and look to your right. We're surrounded by designers. They're, <laughs> and they can all be your mentors. I don't know what, I think people are looking for, sometimes when I hear that, Maurice, I think people are looking for somebody that looks like them or somebody that is exactly like them, not just look like them, but you know, they, they do the same skill set as them, they do, they have the same, I don't know, speak the same, talk the same, whatever. They're mm-hmm. almost looking for a mirror image of themselves. And John Carpenter was not a mirror image of myself. Les Hall was not a mirror image of myself. And, and, and definitely Bob Johnson was not either. And they offered me an opportunity and they offered me so much advice and the way that they did it was it wasn't like you go do this it was here are opportunities pick one choose one but you know don't just sit on your laurels and wait for it you know and I think that people in general need to like open their mind to what a mentor is like be more broad in that definition or whatever their definition is of what a mentor is and look around them. Going to networking events is a great way to meet mentors. And not just within your discipline, outside of your discipline, you can find people who are successful, who are great at what they do, and they can be mentors as well too. You know, I go to a lot of events that are outside of design and I meet a lot of very inspiring people, and I don't consider them my mentor, but I consider them somebody that's like, oh, wow, I want to know what you're doing. I want to know why you're doing these things and how you're doing these things, because they're more inspirational things for me to like, you know, make sure that I'm not getting stuck in my ways or being able to see things that I'd never probably have seen before. And so I think people just need to like open their mind to what a mentor could be. And I think that once they do that, that question that 
a lot of people always ask about, you know, I need a mentor. Well, you know, that will dilute down some probably. What's the best piece of advice that you've been given from one of your mentors? <laughs> That's a hard <laughs> one. I've been given a lot of great advice. Probably one of the things that comes top of mind that I actually tell a lot of people that I mentor is to always explore possibilities, but don't just get stuck with what you feel most comfortable with. That's something that has really helped me because, especially here at IBM Design, I actually, you know, I'm doing a lot of things that are kind of uncomfortable here, really. You know, facilitating in front of a group of people that I don't know (laughs) is not an easy thing to do. And a lot of people see what we do and they think that it's easy until they get in front of that room. And I will say that that's probably like one of the things that I tell a lot of people, you know, like explore possibilities, explore things that are like out of your comfort zone and, you know, and try them. You know, you never know what will work out unless you try them. What motivates and inspires you to continue working, like doing the work that you do, I should say? Wow, that's <laughs> yeah, some good questions, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a really hard question for me to actually answer, mainly because I don't know what it is. The other night I was here doing some portfolio reviews up until for one of my friends who's teaching a portfolio class that I typically teach. And I was here till 10 o'clock last night and one of my teammates here asked before the portfolio review started, he was like, you do so much, what, how do you do it? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, I just do it. And, and so, like, I just, I really enjoy helping people. And design for me, in one aspect, I'm helping people when I'm creating a workshop for people to take or, you know, creating a poster that advertises a workshop or, you know, creating a new brand experience. But, you know, beyond myself, when I'm helping people do better at what they want to do, and within the, the, the design world, I think that's my drive. That's something that is like that drives me when people, when somebody needs help with design, I want to help them if I can. I want to be able to like give them advice and offer them my experiences and my stories of like how I've approached those situations, whether it's career oriented or just design oriented and solving problems in design. I really enjoy doing that. Yeah, it's, that's is that what <laughs> is that what drew you to teaching? Probably, most likely, yes. So, I actually, was several years ago when I was still living in Northern Kentucky, I was actually asked to uh, by a um, teacher at my alma mater, Northern Kentucky University, to teach a class. He's like, "Yay, we have these intro computer graphics classes. I'm looking for somebody who can teach these classes. I know you. I know you have pretty good software skills. Would you want to teach that?" It's like yeah, I'll give it a shot. And, you know, they let me teach the class. And from there on, it's, it's just been like a great experience for me. It's, it's actually really helped a lot in those things that I never thought I really needed help with, which, you know, kind of like public speaking, getting in front of the classroom, and even just keeping my skills sharp. You know, one of the things that when I'm teaching is that I always have to stay ahead of my students. And so doing that research, looking into what are the new things that can be done in the, at that time in the software or what are the new things that uh, people are looking for in their portfolios. And when I teach a portfolio class, having to stay ahead of the curve of, or staying ahead of my class so that I can like, it's not about looking good in front of them, like by knowing all these things, but it's being able to answer their questions because students ask great questions when they get the confidence to ask those questions. And so so I can be able to like either answer that question or just be able to point them in a direction. It's like, hey, I don't know that, but you should look at this person, this person, and this person. And you uh, and let me know what you find out about it because I would love to know what you find out about that. So teaching is I'm a firm believer in that we should always be learning throughout our life. And teaching has probably, you know, really amplified that for me because I'm always learning something new. 
what excites you about design right now? Well, it's I think it's the great unknown. I over the past 17, 18 years that I've been doing design, I've been through that constant change from you know, when I started, it was all about visual design and the internet kind of like became something for everybody that, that was able everybody could do it. And I saw that kind of blow up and take off and into you know, environmental design became like a huge hot topic and all these other like changes in design where it went from only certain people could do design to everybody can do design now. And so I think a lot of things that get me excited about design is I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. There may be somebody who's going to come out with a new technology or a new practice with design and it's something that's like, oh, wow, what's that? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it's that great. We're in a great unknown now, I think, with design. And every time you think we have, you know, a finger on the pulse, the pulse changes. And that's pretty exciting right now. It's I know it's a lot. It's really scary for some people. But for me right now in my career, it's I think it's really exciting, especially being in the studio here where I'm working with, you know, the average age of a person here is probably 24 years old and so they're bringing in new tools new design practices that i am unaware of and so i'm learning constantly every day here from a lot of people here but not just from them working with senior level ibm designers that have been here for 20 or 30 years that they have tools and practices that i'm firmly unaware of especially in the software design aspect so learning from them as well too so I'm getting hit from both ends, Maurice. <laughs> <laughs> if you had an opportunity to work on any type of project, like say it's your dream project, what would that look like for you? The teaching has been a really huge, really big part of my career. And it's something that I'm looking forward to actually, you know, how can I, you know, expand upon that? within the realm of creativity, not necessarily design itself, but creativity in general. And there's a lot of great programs here that have already been started, like E4 Youth Initiative with Carl Settles, and there's a couple other groups that are using education as a way to educate high school people and within the creative world. So I think that's what I'm, I'm looking forward to, probably down the road, or like even if as a passion project, if I wanted to do that, you know, sooner than later as well. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like it's 2020. What's Owen working on? I'm probably going to be teaching a whole lot more. I'm teaching a lot now within the, the corporate level, you know, as a facilitator, whether that is going to be still here or at a university. I teach part-time right now in university. Is that going to like switch more to university and less corporate world or agency world, you know, that I think that's still up in the ether right now. But I'm really enjoying what I'm doing with the facilitation. It was a huge change for me to do this, going from the agency world for 15 years over to the corporate world in-house and not doing as much design as I used to do, but doing something that I'm really happy with and really passionate about. Well, Owen, just to kind of wrap up this interview, where can our audience find out more about you, about your work, and everything online? Yes, so I do have a website. It is visualnotepad.org. It's not up to date as much as I would love it to. (laughs) I think every designer designer has that pain, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Um, If you want to see some of the things that I've been doing most recently, I am on Instagram. Owen Hammonds, O-E-N. I'm getting more frequent on Twitter and on LinkedIn as well, too. I've been doing a couple of post articles on LinkedIn now. That's one of my ambitions for next year is to like write a whole lot more about some of the things that I've been learning from teaching. And also, just from my uh, mentor experience, putting those things to writing and uh, publishing them more often. So LinkedIn and Twitter are some of those places you can find some of those writings. All right. Sounds good. Well, Owen, thank you again so much for taking time out of your day. I know you've been 
super busy. You've been doing a lot of traveling, so it really means a lot that you're able to to take time out to explain the work that you're doing at IBM Design, why it's important, and also just kind of the things that inspire you to to sort of give back to the design community, whether it's through mentorship, whether it's through teaching. I would really like to see a lot more designers, like say at your level, that have, have really kind of come through the ranks, give back in that same sort of way. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Maurice, for the opportunity. You're doing a great thing with this revision path. I just introduced it here at the, to a group here at the studio, and they were like, yes. <laughs> Really? So IBM Design knows about Revision Path? Yes. Wow. Okay. All right. Cool. Again, man, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thoughts of love are in And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Owen Michael Hammonds and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Owen and his work through the links in the show notes at provisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code SPREADLOVE at checkout. This episode was edited by R.J. Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Plus levels start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Happy holidays, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.